gosh. Well, that was an ordeal. What? Dave. Alright, let me just... Hello? Kyle. Kyle, are you, are you still in there? No, no. I, I don't know how we got separated, but I, I just ate a blue pill that I found half dissolved in the gutter. Oh, Between that's you and awesome. me, I'm not actually Who's sure. Eat, wait, wait, wait. Sorry, Kyle, Kyle, Kyle. Can, can, can we get a second? Yeah, yeah. Did you eat the blue pill? I ate are blue you pill. out? I'm out. I'm in. You're still in. Okay. <laughs> Come out with me, Dave. This is uh, another great soundbite. Dave, just just walk towards the light, Dave. Just walk towards the light. It's so bright. It's it's hurting my eyes. I think I have to go the other way. No, 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 no. Rave it out. Come towards the light, man. Get your glow sticks on and come here. There's so many colors. Yes. There's so many colors. They're moving around. In his own garage, Kyle has built a machine. Cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen, this monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown, and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This, this is, is Kyle, Kyle and Dave, Dave versus, versus the, machine. the Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. I'm Dave. And I'm the Machine. We're today get to have a chance. Uh, it's been a, a harrowing last couple of weeks here, but we've escaped our cold apocalyptic future. We've now come back here into quote unquote, the real world. And uh, we're going to get back on the horse, even though we're social distancing. Uh, Dave is over at his house. I'm at my house. The machine is sitting here right next to me. This is the worst possible outcome. Well, that's not very nice. And we get to watch the movie go. Tonight. We're going to this party tonight, this warehouse thing. Some sort of rave thing. Is this gonna be cool? Yeah, I guess. Does the British guy still work here? We went to Vegas for the weekend. The British guy usually hooks us up. Let me see what I can do. Give me a number. I can't believe you're selling allergy medicine. Oh, we're out of that. We're down to chewable aspirin. I think I feel something. So Dave, what is your... Oh, oh my gosh, Dave. Remember that guest store that the machine made me build like a few weeks ago? Yeah. Uh, the Foley in my place is exceptional. Everyone hears everything that happens in my house. Um, sorry, I just have to open this door up. Be careful just, with the social distancing. It's just a just a phone. Sorry, I'm gonna have to wipe it down here first. Yeah, Lysol, Lysol that right. thing. Uh, hello. Hey, how's is it that, going? Is that Jen? I I think that yeah no yeah I haven't changed my name oh good uh, to date so yes yeah hi Jen, <laughs> Jen Hall how, welcome how can I hear her too you know I don't I don't want to um uh, begin to imagine how technology works so it's just it's it's magic internet magic. Uh, Jen, do you uh, feel like joining us and talking about the movie Go? Sure. I, I, I'd be happy to join. I, I happen to have watched it the other night. Wow, that's crazy coincidence. That's, um, that's amazing. <laughs> um, we do get to talk about Go uh, here today. Uh, Jen, do you have any familiarity with this movie other than you watched it a couple nights ago? I recognized the cover. I the rest of it, you know. Of course, there's that familiarity with certain actors from that time period. But it was funny that I I, I saw the cover and went, "That looks really familiar." That that's about it, though. <laughs> yeah, this is we're still in the era of me recognizing movies by their like VHS slash DVD covers rather than actually seeing the movie themselves. There's just some of those ones that are so iconic to me walking through the aisles of like Blockbuster. Dave, how about you? What uh, familiarity do you have with this movie, if at all? Uh, all I know is that it has to do with ecstasy. And uh, like Jen... The I, drug or like the feeling? We're going to find out, I think. Okay. Uh, I, I also recognize, like when you said go, I can picture the cover. It's blue and there's a girl on it. And there's the word go. Very uh, bright colors. Yeah. Yeah. Red but jacket. I'm not sure. Out. I'm not convinced I've watched this before, but I, I know about it. Is that weird? 
I know all about it. Yeah, I know a lot about it too for a couple different reasons. One, uh, I knew it because of the poster. I'm pretty sure in university, probably one of the nights I was drinking, I may have seen like the first 20 minutes of this movie. That's about it. I have no other recollection of past that. And uh, there was a Simpsons episode in I'm gonna, one of its later, later seasons called Trilogy of Error that was basically a reference to this movie where it's the same story told from three different points of view. Uh, and I know the writers reference it, like go is a big inspiration for them outside Everything of that for you. Nothing goes back to the Simpsons uh, for a lot of my life. But that is not, uh, there's not a lie for, for, for most of my life. How about this? So uh, it sounds like we're all coming at this from a fairly new perspective. So we don't necessarily have like a feeling from 1999, having watched this movie, we're all coming at this from say a, a present perspective. Do any of us have any history with rave culture? No. Yes. Because I do not. Ooh. Jen doesn't. Dave, you do. Can you tell me what was the rave culture like in 1999? 99 in Toronto, rave culture was sort of at its surface level peak, meaning that it had existed underground for probably five to eight years in Toronto, but it had crossed over from the UK, I'm pretty sure, early 90s. Because I remember even when I started high school, I had a friend that did one summer in London came back wearing giant jeans. Oh, like <laughs> Jinko jeans or like oh, what? Fuck. No, like big house jeans where you okay. can't see his shoes. And, oh. uh, and we, <laughs> we laughed. We laughed and we made fun of this fool. And it turned out he was so far ahead of his time. So by 99, it was like raves were actually advertised, like they were club right. nights. And even though the rave, quote unquote, definition was still the all night party where you're leaving a back room warehouse at uh, five o'clock in the morning and uh, it's disgusting. It was, uh, it was in full swing in 99 in the Toronto area. So that's interesting. not subculture anymore. You know, with me having my uh, straight edge lifestyle as I do, this is a whole new world to understand. And for me, like the, the biggest thing is that this is actually a pretty big thing for like uh, gay subcultures and, and gay culture in the 90s was like raves were a big thing. And I n literally never partook in them, have never been to one, was never invited to one, wouldn't even know where to go and find one. Uh, I was that lame. Whether it was growing up in Rocky Mountain House or going to school in Lethbridge, it just was not a thing that was in my life. How about Sexsmith, Alberta, Jen? Where uh, where did we where did we fall in the <laughs> rave culture up there? <laughs> uh, I I can't say that I remember anyone referencing raves locally. I mean, partying out there was someone's farm beers in the back of a truck that sort yeah. of idea uh additionally i was in grade nine so i think even <laughs> if there were race happening i was a little young i don't know we'll, uh, i guess we'll, well see yeah right on the edge there either way small town sort of uh took rave culture out of out of it and, yeah. and internet hadn't been around long enough for for uh culture yeah. to spill over to small towns that much yes so you guys uh you guys feel footloose a little bit more closely footloose and fancy free as they might say yeah nothing <laughs> I mean, nothing no no background kevin bacon i know that jen has already watched it jen just hold the line for like two hours me and dave are going to go and watch this movie and we'll, we'll thank some sponsors of course and then when we come back we'll discuss go so jen just hold the line Hey there, everybody. This is Kyle. As you have heard, me and Dave are practicing social distancing like good citizens. And I'm here to thank some of our sponsors here today. So let's get right to it. Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This episode is brought to you by Park Power, a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. Park Power is a small local business, and like many of you, it has been closely monitoring the news on COVID-19 and the world's rapidly changing circumstances. While many of their team are currently working remotely, the way Park Power does business has not changed, and their commitment to exceptional customer service will remain. Find out more about Park Power's response to the COVID-19 outbreak at parkpower.ca. 
We're also sponsored this week by Pod Power. Don't get it twisted. There's two different things. So with Pod Power, ATB is making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, we're giving a Pod Power shout out to A Tale of Two Weeklies. A Tale of Two Weeklies is a documentary podcast series that digs into the rise and fall of Edmonton's C Magazine and View Weekly, two alt-weeklies engaged in a newspaper war that neither survived. You can find A Tale of Two Weeklies wherever pods are cast, or visit taleoftwoweeklies.com. All right. Well, th- thank you so much for waiting for us, Jen. Uh, did you uh, did did you accomplish anything in the last uh, few hours? Uh, I have fully reorganized my house, changed my mind, and set it back the way it was before. So, <laughs> wow, I love that was it. Fun. I love it. Uh, Let's get into Go. So Go was released on April 9th, 1999. The other major release that came out this week was Never Been Kissed, starring Drew Barrymore and David Arquette, written by Abby Cohn and Mark Silverstein, directed by Raja Gosnell. Have either of you seen Never Been Kissed? Yes. Great movie. I have not seen uh, Never Been Kissed, which feels weird because I saw pretty much every other romantic comedy from the late 90s and have not seen that one. Go is currently rated 7.2 on IMDb. It is rated 72 on Metacritic. And then on Rotten Tomatoes, it is a certified fresh film at 91% from the critics. The users rate it 78%. It is available on DVD or Blu-ray. You can rent or buy it from iTunes, and you can also rent via YouTube or Google Play Movies. Uh, its budget in 1999 was $20 million. Uh, adjusted for inflation, that's $31 million our uh, current time stream. Its opening was 4.7. Domestically, it would go on to make $16 million. Internationally, it would make an additional 11, which brings its total up to $28 million or $43 million adjusted for inflation. So it would probably have been considered uh, a bit of a disappointment meaning that usually what you want to do as far as budgets go, its budget was $20 million, usually had 50% on uh, because of marketing, so it made just under $30 million. So it would be like a break-even slash didn't make money sort of thing, unfortunately. Uh, the plot description from IMDb is the aftermath of a drug deal as told from three different points of view, which is a pretty succinct description for this film. <laughs> I miss the old days, right? With like yeah, yeah. very simple synopses. Instead of essays. Essays, especially when most of them nowadays, having done this show, any modern movie usually has to do with some sort of child abduction, uh, serial killer shootout sort of thing. Like that seems to be the the going descriptions for most of the movies that these actors are in. Let's talk about the stars. It stars Sarah Pauly as Ronna Martin, Jay Moore as Zach, Scott Wolfe as Adam, and Desmond Askew as Simon Baines. So I don't know why some of them got last names and some didn't, but that's where we are. Uh, let me tell you, Melissa about- McCarthy deserves a shout there. Well, yes, yes. Well, let's we'll get there. Absolutely. We'll get there. <laughs> uh, let's start with Desmond Askew. He was born on December seventeenth, nineteen seventy-two. His first feature film credit is from the notorious nineteen eighty-four film "Give My Regards to Broad Street," which starred Sir Paul McCartney, who also wrote and scored the film. And apparently it's awful. Anyway, Desmond played Magic Carpet Kid in that movie. From there, he took on a bunch of roles on British television, including Grange Hill, Island, and the miniseries Jack the Ripper. Go would be his first film as an adult, after which he would return to TV with his most recognized role in the US TV series Roswell, where he appeared in seven episodes. In 2006, he would appear in the Hills Have Eyes remake and then segue into bit parts, especially lending his voice to video games like Call of Duty 4, Dragon Age Origins, and Bioshock 2. Uh, Have we played any of those games here collectively? No. I'm going to go with no. No. Okay. His most recent acting credit was as a guest spot on NCIS in 2017. All right. So that is Desmond Askew. Check the box. Yeah. Thanks, Machine. Mm-hmm. Good job there. I'm going to screw up your recording. Scott Wolf. Let's talk about Scott Wolf. Scott Wolf was born June 4th, 1968. His first credit was an uncredited appearance as a thug in the live action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in 1990. What? Yep. Excellent. Look it up. He would go on to be in eight episodes of Saved by the Bell, as well as a single guest appearance on Parker Can't Lose and Blossom. 
However, for anyone who was the right age in the 90s, you'll most likely remember him from Party of Five in the role of Bailey Salinger, which ran from 1994 to 2000. Which, a uh, little side note, I would have totally lost the bet because I thought Party of Five ended way before the year 2000. After Go, he wasn't really able to move into a strong film career, uh, but he has been a working actor up until present day. So some other highlights would be 38 episodes of Everwood, 13 episodes of The Nine, and 22 episodes of V. Interestingly, he would also appear on NCIS. Uh, he's been doing a bunch of voice work for such varied projects as BoJack Horseman, Voltron, and Kaijudo. He also appeared in the Hallmark Channel's A Christmas Love Story opposite Kristen Chenoweth in 2019. Currently, he is portraying Carson Drew, Nancy Drew's father, in the series Nancy Drew. Fun fact, he took over for Freddie Prince Jr., who was in the pilot episode but was not cast when the series was picked up. So, fun fact, a little crossover from Freddie Prince, who has shown up a few times throughout our series here so far. Uh, in his personal life, he was engaged to Alyssa Milano, but they were never married. Instead, he married Kelly Marie Limp, a contestant on The Real World. They married in 2002, are still married, and have three kids together. So, that is Scott Wolf. Any Scott Wolf fans? I had a bit of a crush on him from Party of Five Days, but that was me being a weirdo, closeted kid <laughs> at 12 years old. I had a full-on Party of Five boycott, so... I'll, oh, because you hate fun. You hate... <laughs> You don't like a, 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 a series about a bunch of kids whose parents die and have to make it on their own? I, just, I can't handle the culture, right? Are we talking white culture or what are you talking about? Well, if, yeah, if we want to go there. We... <laughs> How about you, Jen? Was there any, did you ever watch Party of Five? I've, I've probably seen 12 episodes total in my entire life. Uh, I was aware of it. Not, never got into it. Scott mm -hmm. Wolf falls under the oh, hey, it's that guy category for me where I always recognize yeah. him, but I don't really put that much thought into it. <laughs> I had that exact thought when he appeared on screen in Go. And I was like, yes. hey, oh, it's, it's that guy. Jay Moore. Jay Moore was born August 23rd, 1970. He was a stand-up comedian and still is as far as I know, but dabbled in acting starting in his early 20s. He had a very short run as a cast member of Saturday Night Live from 1993 to 1995. He would follow that up, though, with a huge film in Jerry Maguire. Before Go, he had already been in films such as Suicide Kings and Polly, but after which he tried starting in his own TV series called Action, which I believe is the last screen role of Buddy Hackett. Fun little fact for you. It only lasted a season, but he's appeared consistently in bit parts in many movies and TV shows, such as Scrubs, The West Wing, Family Guy, and Monk. He's also lent his voice to video games, such as Saints Row 2 and Leisure Suit Larry. Film highlights include The Incredible Burt Wonderstone, All About Nina, and Mr. Malevolent. You'll be able to see him in a supporting role in the upcoming movie The Orchard, described as... A sheriff makes a strange discovery when he gets called to an orchard where three teenage sisters have been attacked by a band of young delinquents. See, I'm telling you, like literally every one of these descriptions. You can hear him right now infringing on our copyright by listening to his podcast called More Stories. More Stories. He also, if you've never heard it, uh, does a great impression of Christopher Walken. That's my <laughs> knowledge of him, too, because he does a really great one. Have any of you watched his stand-up by any chance? I don't think so. Yeah. No. I, I only really remember him concretely, other than some of the guest spots I've seen of him in movies, is him being on Saturday Night Live for those two seasons. That was the weird period after all the like popular people like after Chris Farley and, and uh, Phil Hartman and et cetera, et cetera, all like Mike Myers and all of them all left at one time. It's just <laughs> it before in, Will Ferrell. Yeah. So it was all, it was that weird inter intermediary period. Sarah Polly. Sarah Polly was born January 8th, 1979. She started acting at four years old, appearing in bit parts. However, as Canadians, she absolutely was best known as Sarah Stanley, the lead in the show Road to Avonlea, which ran from 1990 to 1996. I have to imagine either of you like have memories of this, or am I literally the only one who watched Road to Avonlea when I was a kid? Yeah, no, nothing. No, Jen, Jen and I have uh, oh have self respect, God. so we. Uh... No, I grew up only having two stations, so I had CBC and like another station, and it was on Sunday nights. So I remember. And I Sarah still Polly. knew better than to watch Road to Avonlea. <laughs> 
well, somehow. That's I had the same two stations. <laughs> I mean, everybody knows Sarah Pauly. She's quite a name in Canadian act, but I oh, don't yeah. think I've ever watched her act in oh, anything. You should. She's great. Uh, I, she's well, I suppose I just watched Go. You, so, you just watched Go. But she actually did not want to go to Hollywood. Her big thing is she wanted to stay in Canada and star in Canadian films and TV. This was accentuated by the fact that she got recognized internationally for being in two Adam Agoyan films, Exotica and The Sweet Hereafter, the latter of which was what convinced casting directors to have her come in for Go. 1999 was a busy year for her as she appeared in a movie called Guinevere, The Life Before This, and the David Cronenberg film Existence. Uh, of course, Go is also the other one that she was in. She would go on to be in such films as Luck, Dawn of the Dead, Sugar, The Secret Life of Words, the well-regarded miniseries Slings and Arrows, as well as Splice. She has not appeared as an actress since 2010. What she has done, however, is transfer into being a writer and director. After a bunch of short films, she directed Away From Her, which was a hugely successful film critically and even earned Academy Award nominations for Best Actress for Julie Christie and Best Adapted Screenplay for her. Uh, it lost both, didn't win any awards. But she would follow that up with the documentary Stories We Tell, which was about her own family and was also hugely critically successful. In it, she actually discovers that her father is not actually her father. And she discovers that on screen. <laughs> uh, she has written six episodes of the TV show Alias Grace and will be directing episodes of a new show called Hey Lady, which will debut later this year. Uh, she has always been politically active in Canada. Road to Avonlea was broadcast on the CBC. In the United States, it appeared on the Disney Channel. At the age of 12, she was invited to an award show where she wore a shirt with a peace sign that was done as a protest to the Gulf War. Disney executives asked her to take it off. She said no, and that has made her hesitant to ever work with Disney ever again. She would lose two of her back teeth after being struck by a policeman during a protest against a provincial government she didn't like. Uh, she also spoke up during Harvey Weinstein's whole thing that happened last year and exposed the fact that she thinks that because of her strong will and uh, what she was trying to do and what he did prevented her from actually acting for the last decade. So he actually went around town kind of bad mouthed her and encouraged people not to hire on for projects as many actresses did who decided not to sleep with him. That's Sarah Polly. So Sarah Polly, you should support her more. I love her. Uh, written, this movie was written by John August, born August 4th, 1970. Go was his first produced feature-length script, but would follow this up with Charlie's Angels, its sequel, and Big Fish. This would begin his partnership with Tim Burton, as he also wrote the screenplays to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Corpse Bride, and Dark Shadows. The last film you would have possibly seen was the live-action Aladdin, which was directed by Guy Ritchie, who we've also talked about on this on this podcast. His next film was just announced is called Summer Loving. And I kid you freaking not. This is the description. Summer Loving is a prequel to Greece, focusing on the fling Danny Zuko and Sandy Olsen had before reconnecting at high school. A big old note from this guy. Big old note from this guy. <laughs> it's it's combining two things I don't think should be done: prequels and musical prequels. Uh, he's an interesting there's, guy. There's though. a theme there. There's a yeah. theme. <laughs> uh, he is an interesting guy in that, besides writing screenplays, he has tried his best to help out other screenwriters and aspiring writers. First, with his website, where he hosted a bunch of different articles and screenwriting tips. And then helping to develop a number of apps such as FDX Reader, which allowed iOS users to read final draft files. This was followed up by Weekend Read and Assembler. He began a podcast in 2011 with another screenwriter, Craig Mazin, called Script Notes, again to help aspiring screenwriters. And his debut novel, Arlo Finch in the Valley of Fire, was released in 2018. All right. Yay, trivia! Directed by Doug Lyman. Doug Lyman was born July 24th, 1965. He would jump into the public consciousness with his film Swingers. And then after Go, he, he would direct the first Jason Bourne film, which is, I think, where his style truly came into being. He would then have another hit with Mr. and Mrs. Smith, the Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie uh, co-production. And then a not-so-hit with Jumper, if you remember the film Jumper with Hayden Christensen. Hayden Christensen, right. He would join forces with Tom Cruise to make the excellent, in my opinion, Edge of Tomorrow, sometimes called Live, Die, Repeat, depending on what platform you watch it on. It, that's a weird history of why the name changes. 
He has been mired in a boondoggle for the last few years. The movie Chaos Walking was filmed in 2017 and was supposed to have been released in 2019. It probably won't be released until next year, if ever. It stars Tom Holland and Daisy Ridley when they were at the height of both of their popularities. It's written by Charlie Kaufman of Adaptation being John Malkovich and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind fame. Although he is one of five credited screenwriters on that movie. Reshoots have taken place. The release has been pushed back twice. By reports, it sounds like it's going to be awful. Uh, Somehow, even with all the great creative forces behind this, it seems like it just isn't working. The plot description is a dystopian world where there are no women and all living creatures can hear each other's thoughts in a stream of images, words, and sounds called noise. So... So maybe you'll see that movie one day, although I would not hold your breath. Regardless, he is starting pre-production on uh, a new Tom Cruise movie called Live, Die, Repeat, and Repeat. That's correct. It's a sequel to that movie we just talked about. Maybe a prequel? Who knows? Who knows? Musical. Uh, I, think they should nice. call it, I think they should call it Repeat, Die, Live. That would be just a fun little reversal. Uh, by the way, he's also making a remake of the Cannonball Run. That is, that is Doug Lyman. Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds one from the 70s, yeah. Which are, are so we, bad, bad movies, but that's the movie like we need right now. That's yeah. the movie we yeah. That's, In this time of uh, social upheaval. Yeah, it's not the movie we want. It's the movie we're gonna get though. I was just thinking um, here in quarantine, you know, it'd be really great to uh, get back on that cannonball run. You know, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. uh well we'll 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 try our best. Okay, so that's a lot of backstory here. Let's start with you, Jen. Jen, we just saw Go. Well, you watched Go a couple of nights ago. Uh, mm. What are your initial thoughts? Just overall thoughts about the movie itself. I I, re- I really enjoyed the having those the th- three angles to the same problem. I think they did a really good job of having these three separate stories, and and, and I I really didn't uh, n- more often than not I didn't know where it was going, which was I I think just really fun and and good storytelling. I did not watch the trailer or read anything about it before going into it. So it was fun just going on that ride. It's interesting because when they switched to uh, another character for the first time, I actually thought they were doing Groundhog's Day approach Mm. because they repeated a scene and I thought, Oh no, I didn't, I've never been a fan of, of film or television where they repeat the day. Uh, But thankfully that was not the case. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but it, it, it was definitely uh, felt a little bit nostalgic with, again, a certain characters um, or actors, sorry, in it that I definitely remember seeing yeah. a few things growing up. So Actors, yeah, no. the music, the fashion, all of it was basically a big flashback to that late 90s period, I thought. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I just think... I, I I think I understand why I did not see it because it was definitely had a lot of like violence, sexuality, the whole thing. It's oh, like yeah, my yeah. parents wouldn't have let me touch that film with a ten foot pole. <laughs> this, this is definitely rated R. Yes. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Dave? What were your initial thoughts? Yeah, I thought it was great. I think everything that Jen was saying. I mean, there was so much shock value. I was not like particularly act till. The conclusion of Act One, I, I definitely gave a little bit of a jump start. I don't know, spoiler alert, but uh, wow, I think we have to spoil a movie that's twenty-one years old. But sure, yeah, when she gets smoked by that car, I like jumped up and I was like, "What?" And yeah, then uh, <laughs> that's where it kind of goes off in this other direction because I feel that the first twenty-ish minutes of this movie is quote unquote realistic in that it's like okay like it's this person going about their day they're this teller they're trying to get this drug deal oh and this is going to be a movie about her trying to get some drugs or get the money or get them both and save herself and like get her out of this jam and then that is what takes her off on this like nope that is absolutely not what this movie is about (laughs) it's about something completely different and then like jen when they started act two because i wasn't expecting it i actually thought uh, you know, the robot and the machine was broken. And I was like, did we start this stupid thing over again? Yeah. Um, yeah. But the divergence of Simon's experience, uh, holy shit, that thing twisted so quickly. I will say for the, it's pretty act two when it does follow Simon around for the longest time. I was like, how is this 
tying in at all with the with what we just saw before uh or uh, somewhere in the back of my mind i was also like are we ever going to come back to the sarah polly character or is that it she's done and we're just now seeing what he did in this one day and we're never going to have the, the streams cross again but it does there's a payoff for everything that happens in vegas yeah it was crazy to watch uh, that devolve too it was weird i i thought uh, the character building in the car was very awkward at the mm-hmm. beginning where he wakes up in the trunk and it turns out to be a practical joke. Yeah. I guess. Hey, at least you saw Brecken Meyer. Do you remember Brecken Meyer? Who's Brecken Meyer again? The white skinny guy. The, that's not British. Isn't that everybody in the film? <laughs> but specifically who's in Las Vegas with them. As that thing devolves, it's crazy. I, I couldn't believe what we were watching. Like, yeah, the radar thing from the sort of directness of all of the sexuality and the, and almost essentially like softcore pornography and then the sudden uh break into uh violence it's crazy well well, this is why a part of me wishes that i could have experienced this in 1999 in a way because i feel like my still go to strip joints (laughs) no i know you can buy champagne Uh, i've i've unfortunately had the displeasure of doing that during stag parties and it was like i'm miserable and i don't want to be here Regardless, that's me white knighting again. I, I, all I just wanted to say was that Act Two specific, or sorry, why I wish I had seen this in 1999 is I think I would have a, a completely different relationship with this movie because I think it seeds these things early in the film that pay off that don't feel like they're even like setups for for later developments because even like in the 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 third time we kind of go through the day and you have the two um soap opera actors that are there i had no inclination that they were actually gay characters until it's very explicit that they actually are i'm like oh that actually caught me off guard i didn't think that that was where this was going i thought this was all going to be like a misunderstanding of just because they're two white guys who <laughs> like walk around with each other they think that they're gay it struck me towards the end how the Katie Holmes, she's not even credited in your intro, which I think is fascinating, but how she's not a main character. <laughs> her character, well, her character is kind of like this middle line where not only is she involved in all three stories, but she has insight in each of the stories. Like the beginning of Act Three, you know, she makes that snide comment to her coworker about how, you know, gay couples always have like a hot guys and such a waste yeah. or whatever, whatever she says. But then as it's developing and he makes up that backstory yeah. about cheating on his wife it's, or girlfriend and even the really awkward police guy and his wife, <laughs> you think that they're... Okay, I, I, I want to put a pin in that because I, I want to come back to that moment specifically. Jane Krakowski, by the way, like early Jane Krakowski. 30 Rock. And, and, and William Fickner, who shows up in so many films but never quite in a film like this i want to come back to jen just for a second is there anything that doesn't work for you jen is there any like scenes or moments or things that are like i don't know about this moment yeah well and i i i don't know if this is like uh it just wouldn't fit in 2020 kind of scenario but when the sarah polly's character is in the drug dealer's apartment for the first time and you know he's essentially like okay you're taking your shirt off for me this sort of thing and and she just does it right like which kind of speaks to that time where women just accepted that that was what was going to happen you know that that was their place in life uh, or you know nobody no other women question that sort of action so they just run with it right and of course there's always going to be the well if i don't do this i'll die because it's a drug dealer sort of scenario but it just seemed a little too like okay <laughs> yeah yeah a little bit too blasé like i do think that if this was made in 2020 there'd be at least some comment on the fact that she's doing this rather than it just kind of happening it was an interesting setup to that where randomly the woman in the bedroom comes out and you know tries to implant her tongue in the guy's face for oh. 25 seconds before leaving out so you get this weird like you're talking about this weird sexual power dynamic where um it's he's kind of meant to be disgusting and gross yeah, even before that moment so that the tension isn't about him worrying that she's wearing a wire but you actually are led to believe that he's going to like she's going to have to sacrifice a lot more than you know her, her money to get this deal done well it, I mean, it was a kind of a weird moment for that reason i thought it was a weird moment but also remember too that i don't think anyone comes out of this movie looking super squeaky clean 
Uh, and what I mean by that is Sarah Polly offers up her friend as collateral. Like she just leaves Katie Holmes there. She's the most corrupt of all the of all the characters, I think, and the most willing and uh, direct. Simon's an idiot. <laughs> right. Do you, well, this is this comes right back to one of like the, the very first lines because she's there at the grocery store ringing people up, which little side note. Do you know if they still have those circular conveyor belts? Because that was like. At, I was thinking about that, too. It's yeah, like yeah, that yeah. was everywhere when I was growing up. Safeway Mission still has those. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good to know. Uh, how about a pager? Does anyone still have a pager? Because <laughs> that was also something that's in this movie. Um, no, <laughs> I like, had I, one. It just goes back to that like awful customer that she's dealing with at the beginning and says, don't think you're something you're not. I used to have your job. Right. So it's like this mother. She's like has the kids and says, like, do you need to bring my coupons? Right. But that's supposed to like cut her to the quick a little bit. And I, I feel like that's almost is the inciting incident in many ways where it's like, screw you. I can. I'm more than this. And I think that is what pushes her to start going into this drug deal, which she wouldn't normally do. Maybe. I, I thought so too at first, but by the end of the act, I, she's revealed to be quite a desperate mm. human being in principle. Because, you know, if you think back at the beginning, she's already on, what is it, a 14-hour work shift? It sounds like she's already picking up extra work Well, she's, she's, she's destitute. Being, well, yeah, she's lost her house, right? She's lost her apartment, I think is what she says. Which we never She's even returned to. be to. evicted. Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of half expecting at the end of the movie that she wasn't. And the whole thing is, has always been about her just getting, mm-hmm. you know, ahead on something that she'll never get ahead on. Because they don't talk about the apartment specific. You don't visit there. You don't know anything about her actual living arrangement. She's just this person who uses an excuse to go on to the next, uh, as it turns out, criminal act. Sure, <laughs> and sure. next scam. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Like, it's it, it's it's hard to say. Like, if this is just an act of desperation, or like she's kind of just, in some ways, given up or something like that. Where it's like, I don't really have anything else. Like more conniving that there's an intent there. No, I guess I don't. I I would love to hear what Jen has to say. I feel like this is her flailing around trying to figure things out as it goes along, rather than it being like a masterminded trying to make things work. That's that's what I feel, but I don't know. Jen, do you have a an alternate outlook? It was interesting because it sort of felt like, okay, she, yes, she had this problem she was trying to solve, but I also feel like she was trying to, to a certain degree, take advantage of an opportunity to prove herself, to say, I can handle this. I don't need these other people playing middlemen. I'm I'm strong enough and bold enough to handle these scenarios. She didn't uh, come across as a, uh, you know, wallflower that has accidentally ended up in this dangerous situation. She knew what she was doing the entire time. She could have gone in a lot of directions to solve her problem. They kind of uh, show that too when she's scamming uh, the fools in the minivan because in that world, there were people who paid, you know, 20, 40 bucks for a pill and consumed them and just lay back and hope for the best. And there were people that knew the dealer's rates. And the people that know the dealer's rates are a subset, pretty small group. <laughs> and uh, she's cast in this light where she's not a patsy, right? Like she knows Simon, she knows where he gets his, his pills from, she knows the rate that he pays. When you get to that stage where you know somebody who knows the, so, the wholesale rates of drugs, uh, you're not a nobody. You know, there's mm-hmm. something about her character where it's pretty dark to begin with. Uh, even the way she fights back, it's not that this lady's like, well, you're a piece of shit too, because you know, you're laughing at me. She's like, I'll never be you. You know, there's like this mm-hmm. angst underneath that that they display in quite a in quite a severe way. She's, she's not a very likable person throughout her stage. She's, uh, she's pretty gross, actually. She's the only one who made sense. I don't know if I necessarily think there's anyone who's likable, quote unquote, in this movie, to be perfectly frank. <laughs> I think they're all kind of a bit uh, deplorable is the, the wrong word. But like as a late 30s person now, I'm just like, you're making terrible life choices <laughs> to all the people that are in that. <laughs> well, this is the thing, though. I was getting a bit of a negative nostalgia because at least the life I was leading in that era was too similar. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I didn't shoot a bouncer with a found gun. And, uh, you know, right. my experiences in the raving drug culture will keep anonymous, but uh, didn't go so far as to taking my shirt off uh, for suspicion of wearing yeah. a wire. But I, I will say though, maybe she does get her comeuppance because knowing how the healthcare system works in the U S at least a tiny little bit, 
she'll probably be paying off that hospital bill for like the next 20 years of her life. So they're <laughs> yeah, actually walked that. out. So who knows? Yeah. yeah. Um, I'll just I'll just mention briefly the thing that didn't work necessarily for me was I won't say all of Act Two, but it took me a while to warm up to Act Two. I thought it was felt like such a weird departure from the tone of that first bit of like we're seeing her go through this even getting hit by the car I'm like okay things are getting real and then it goes into his storyline and like this is really wackadoo like cartoony like over the top stuff that's happening here and this feels like a very different movie it's like as if like true romance segued into i don't know like a will ferrell comedy or something like that it's like this is way too different in styles uh, for me to really hang on. I eventually kind of liked how madcap it got. <laughs> like it kind of just rests it up to the to 11 at the very end. But yeah, it seemed like such a huge departure to it. Here's what I will say. One of my favorite parts of the movie happens in Act 3 because there's a payoff where you think that the William Fickner character, like that the police guy, is like this repressed homosexual who wants to like uh, seduce these two young hot studs and it turns out he just wants to sell them a pyramid scheme and i thought that was such <laughs> a, i thought it was such a funny reveal that i had to pause the movie because i thought there was like that's a great setup and payoff because you totally had me hooked that this was going in one way it's like nope they were literally trying to seduce them into actually buying amway stuff from them which is a pyramid scheme it's a it is a huge pyramid scheme it was a little weird in hindsight how it's kind of like how you're describing act two, how overtly pornographic their setup was. I mean, she's waiting for the guy to open the door in a full like front fold with her ass hanging out, licking the cream and making out the dude, Uh, you know, when Fickner's like naked talking about perfumes and body oils and spring mattresses and shit. And you're like, yeah, there, there, it was, it got very weird. Uh, and <laughs> I was there for two, it. I, I like that type of weird, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> act two's uh, thing. I, I, I felt disconnected to assignment. I, yeah. You know, when it starts off and they're just four idiot bros and a beat up car going to Vegas, it's one thing. It was interesting that uh, Tadig's character is so woke, quote unquote, and he seemed like he kind of had a levelish head. Um, but then in comparison, Simon is a cartoon character and there, right. it is hard to follow at the beginning because he's such a moron. And outside of, I guess, his successful seduction of two uh, women in the wedding, as soon as he starts playing with that gun that he finds in the glove compartment, and I was like cringing because I thought the movie oh was going to have him shoot Tay Diggs in the face. I know. It, it went on a bit too long for me, that scene, because like, yeah, we get it. He's bad with the gun. Like, stop pointing at him. <laughs> Flipping it around, juggling yeah. it. That got so strange. Here's another question, I guess, for the group here. Do you think the multiple storylines are even needed? Or does, is it just kind of a gimmick for this movie to be looked at a little bit different? I liked it. I don't, I don't know. I don't feel like I don't feel like we see that um, approach too often in movies. So when it no. happens, it's kind of fun. Yeah, it's only a few times. There's uh, this uh, Run Lola Run is another one I know that is told from a few different points of view. And then... I always forget which Kurosawa movie is it. Is it Rashomon is the one that's told, or is it Ran that's told from three points? I think Rashomon. I could be wrong. But uh, Mm -hmm. no, it was also a bit of a trope. I mean, uh, you could argue Usual Suspects, uh, Mm, that shitty wild things. uh, I think when it's done poorly is when they do the catch-up storytelling. Mm -hmm. You know, they're like, oh, this happened. Oh, but by the way, you know, three hours earlier, (sighs) I personally agree with you. I, I liked it. I thought it suited the intent, I think, of the... I mean, if I... Maybe I'll put it a different way. I feel like I liked it because I feel like the intent of the storytelling was uh, to draw on these uh, three different experiences of a single night. And they're all three different types of people. And they all end up in the same place. It, it was kind of, uh, kind that's, of weird. That's kind of what I liked about it, too, is that each, each of the stories is actually a very different tone feel to it and yet they all end up in the same place ultimately so it's i think it, it hammers into that idea of like when you're in a group of people you don't really know the backstory of how everyone got to that point in that day uh but so it's cool to see everyone's story and i guess it just lends credence to an entire philosophy of life of right uh, everyone is the main character of their own life right so like uh, yes, you might cross paths with other people, but they're having a story and I'm having a story and the person that I didn't look at in Starbucks is having a story, but we all kind of intermingle and are in the same spot at the same time. 
Do you think, like, you know, to your thought about movie synopses and how things are more cynical now, if this movie is made today outside of technological this and that, do you think that this movie ends in such a positive light the way that it did? Mm. I mean, essentially, everybody gets off scot-free in a manner of speaking. I mean, there are scars. But I just have the suspicion that if it was written today to appease critics, they would, it would be more like Requiem for a Dream. Like, oh, sure. I don't know. It, I guess it depends on, on directors and stuff like that, because I don't want to make it sound like every movie made in, in modern day, like 2019, 2020, is this like super depressing, like no hope sort of thing. That's definitely something that people lean into. No, I think there's still fun things to be had. I don't know. I feel like if this was me today, this movie would be released on either Netflix or Amazon Prime and no one would watch it is probably what <laughs> is the, the biggest answer to that question. It's that mid-budget film that doesn't really get released in theaters anymore. It gets released on a streaming platform and gets forgotten in a day. If, if anything, yeah, they'd either lean in, into more like the sad depression or make it even more goofy. That I feel like it would go into one of those two extremes. But then I, I start thinking about course the uh, technological variables where uh, you know that storyline today everything would be documented everything would be recorded that's true yeah there'd be that technology coming in i also don't think like are raves even still are raves even still a thing nowadays well it's coachella like right yeah yeah yeah. you know it's it's just normalized that would probably be what it'd be more doing it'd be like the three people are on their way to like either a coachella or a bonnaroo or uh, was that Burning Man or something like that, right? And they all end mm-hmm. up there in one spot. Well, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm not even sure if the the rave piece itself would Is be important. a necessary thing. But, yeah. you know, yeah, I mean, drug culture, as much as all of these things uh, socially stay the same, uh, it would be fundamentally different, I'm sure, to depict oh, yeah. what a 19 or 17-year-old yeah. would experience uh, Or they'd be going the into, like, uh, amphetamines and show how that's, like, ruining life across America and Canada. Well, the thing about ecstasy, not that I know enough about this, but what I liked about one of the parts that I liked most about the first one, which was also a negative because it reminds me too much of some stuff that I went through, but ecstasy is a single name that's attributed to a drug that was used in that era, but ecstasy itself was not that straightforward. I mean, Mm. uh, now from what the whispers I was catching from the young kids I was hanging out with uh, MDMA, which is the sort of core pure component of maybe like the birth of ecstasy back in the 80s is back on vogue and that's the drug that just makes you feel like you want to hug and love everybody Mm -hmm. but the ecstasy of the 90s was like generally cut with like speed and all kinds of weird shit so it made for the most part either you not be able to stop dancing until 6 a.m or um you would knock out and just roll on the floor because you would just want to hug the floor. Uh, some of the scenes were interesting where he was hallucinating and it became almost a psychedelic. There's a comment, I think, I don't even know if they name the pill directly. I think they just call it, I can't even remember. Yeah, I don't think they do. I think this is a this is somewhat of a problem. I have literally, as you have heard already, no drug experience in my life. But this is what I always feel Hollywood does is like anytime someone takes a drug or a pill, it automatically goes into psychedelic stuff, right? It's like, uh, that's only like a very small subset of drugs as far as I understand it. But anyways, the other thing that I thought was nostalgic is the uh, trope, which was happening of people selling aspirins and Tylenols uh, for 20 (laughs) bucks a pop because uh, everybody will fake it till they make it. Like when you have a real, uh, if you imbibe a real, drug uh you don't sit there telling your friends about how cool it is and using metaphorical language no Uh, you're usually just on um and that stuff happened particularly at that peak where raves were more of a social thing like everybody had access to them in the late 90s it wasn't like you had to know a guy who knew the underground club and a password and almost like the speakeasy feeling that's my friend who came back from england when he was finding the culture in toronto at the time like nobody even knew that they were happening because you had to be on the inside at that point. But by 99, like there were posters, right? Mm-hmm. Like it was uh, like this one. You get a calling card and it would tell you be at this place at, at this time and everybody would listen to this DJ. And the DJs were becoming world famous at that point. Right. Um, I just remember my friend convincing another friend that the Listerine 
little paper packs, whatever those things are, like the little sheets of the mouth things that you throw, uh, was actually acid, right? Little wafers. So it was actually <laughs> acid. So he dropped acid. It's like, whoa, this is super strong. I'm like, it's just, it's a Listerine thing. Your, your breath so is minty. extra yeah. fresh today. <laughs> right. I, I do love that the, um, the rave itself, <laughs> massive, giant, set up not this isn't something that was set up overnight like you're looking at the card it's like oh yeah funny little drawing of a santa claus and then they have this giant santa claus with a moving head and a giant cutout uh outside of the building it's like this 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 is the type of thing that is big budget or set up kind of permanently for a while so they kind of went oh i thought this was a oh we're there's gonna be a rave and it's gonna come and go overnight uh but it's like, no that's not the kind of thing that just comes and goes overnight it's also interesting to watch it in current times because all i could think of was they're not social distancing properly this is a bad <laughs> wear their this. masks yeah wear their masks listen you're touching too were, many people when you get out and the sun breaks there's literally sweat dripping off the ceilings uh it's not about not sharing fluids uh those places were disgusting. Quite the opposite. <laughs> um, that would be like when I, the one time I went to, when I was in Lethbridge, there was this place where all the university people would go called, it was called the Cadillac Club, but everyone called it Caddies for short. So we went to Caddies, right? And so at night, it's like a certain atmosphere and, and feeling. And then you go into it, if you ever go to there in the afternoon and you're like, oh, this is a shithole. <laughs> this is gross. <laughs> yeah. I know. You can feel how sticky the floor is. Yeah, all it's of a like, sudden. Yeah. this is not great. Um, do you think this movie says anything about 1999 specifically? Like, is there any. Yeah, absolutely. It's a documentary. Oh, is it? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like to Jen's point, you know, the idea of a rave being so budgeted and promoted and big, I mean, those kids are probably paying 20, 40, 50 bucks just to cover to get into those places. The depiction of the fools that are in the minivan eating the fake drugs. I mean, those look like middle upper class, right? Suburban mm -hmm. kids wearing uh, shitty costumes. Like those are the people that, that, that was me, right? Like I, there's an element where they're not trying to pretend that this is the birth of that culture. They're just showing that it's literally in full swing. These are characters. So the story's happening around it. And I don't think that... Uh, the idea that it was a rave was actually as central as I thought it was going to be. It turned right. into you know, Pulp Fiction-y uh, kind of thing where it was actually just a story of uh, a bunch of idiots uh, who can't stop when they need to, like they can't pop well, the bricks. Yeah. Uh, well, to that point then, and Jen, I want you to answer this first. Do you think this movie is trying to say anything? Not that I think you have to to be a good movie, but do you think there is any theme it's trying to do or is it just like a fun story it's trying to have? The moral of this story is, uh, no, I, I think it's just taking us on this ride, right? Yeah. And, and that's sort of part of the charm of pre-social media internet is as a crazy scenario like this can absolutely exist and never be repeated ever again after that day, right? It's, it's, it's this fun thing you talk about uh, behind closed doors every time you reunite with certain people. You remember that one time, um, but it, it's not documented. You know, that that's something I really enjoyed about this whole thing was all the scenarios where you go, oh my God, they have to be caught for this. And they somehow figured out a way to make it totally plausible that everything is covered up in these scenarios. And I just went, you know, I don't think you can get away with that anymore. And I appreciate that movie for this reason. Okay. How are you, Dave? Is there any like ultimate point or is this just a, a fun movie? Uh, you know, it's interesting when Jen, you brought that up. You know, I, I suddenly thought about uh, in the car when the one guy is boasting about the story of the contact lens and it turns out to be the report re repeated fairy tale. Is that a bit of, if not foreshadowing, then sort of a, a shot that the whole thing is essentially this like party night fairy tale, this fable of a night of where everything went so far out into left field. I don't know if there's a point other than uh, learn to pump your brakes and <laughs> just uh, don't take that next step. Um, right. But it's always pulled back too because you know at the end, uh, again, aside from scars, nobody actually dies. Nobody's gone to jail as far as we know. Even the... Uh, uh, the club owner, so you know, presumed crime boss guy, agrees to the 
yeah, to the bullet in the arm, arm trade. Right. Yeah, Tr- never mind the trucks and the loss of business and the fucking mayhem that's uh, preceded that. You flipped my it's car, cartoony. but this will be fine. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and uh, the look on his face, he, I mean, it's full. It's hilarious. They're all sitting on the couch, and Timmy Oliphant, yeah. Timothy Oliphant, or whatever his name is, Timothy is just Oliphant, so excited. Yeah. yeah. Tim, 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 Tim Elephant, the Elephant yeah, yeah. is so excited to just get to watch this moment. I mean, I was kind of sitting there too, like, are they actually going to shoot this guy? Like, um, it was That's so great. weird. Yeah, so I don't know if there's a moral. I don't think so. We're done here. The machine has told us that it is time to stop and to wrap up, uh, which means let's go to our ranking. Now, Jen, because of precedent, uh, it doesn't matter, but I would love to know out of five, what would you rate this movie? It doesn't matter. Just keep in mind that uh, the ratings don't actually matter. It I think doesn't that's matter from our guests. At. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> wow. Uh, you know what? I'm going to give it a four out of five. Four out of five. How about you, Dave? Yeah. I think I'll go with a four. I, I, my caveat is uh, I probably would never willingly rewatch this movie again. But yeah, I enjoyed it. So I'll, I would go with a four. Okay, so what that means is that it is uh, currently going to be tied with a couple of films. So we need to hash this out oh, here. You didn't give it. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, that's right. Sorry. <clears throat> Let me back up. I also gave it a four. So we seem to be all aligned on this call. I don't know how we keep doing this where we're literally all aligned. But I give it a four as well, which means it is tied with a couple of movies. So we have to figure this out. It is currently tied then with 10 Things I Hate About You and Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. Where would you do this? Would it be below both of those, above both of those, in the in the middle? What do you think? Overall, or as far as my personal desire personal, to watch, your personal personal desire to watch, I would say. As far as rewatching it, no, I I would say that it's crafted above, like so, it's written well. But as far as me watching them again, I would put it at the bottom of the three. So I'd probably rewatch Lockstock before I watch 10 Things, even though I think 10 Things I Hate About You is a better movie overall. Mm-hmm. And this movie, even though I really enjoyed watching it, I thought it was written well, I, I don't think I'd ever actually watch it again. Yeah, it's hard. I would go back and forth. I, I really enjoyed it. But Lockstock is a, is a pretty fun movie to watch here too. Uh, so I'm waffling exactly where, but I'll agree with you to uh, to save time here in this case. So that means that Go is going to enter our list at number five. And you can look at the entire list by going to our letterbox page, which is letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM, which coincidentally is also all of our social media links, KDVSTM on both Twitter and Instagram. Let's get into some trivia here for us. So some fun movie trivia for you. Let me just push this button. Uh, Thank you, machine. I told you not to talk to me. The director, Doug Lyman, Pick the grocery store that the movie was filmed in because of its run-down big city quality. When the producers paid the owner of the supermarket for permission to film there, the owners took some of that money and repainted and repaired the store for a more Hollywood look. The directors and producers were understandably unhappy with this since they, the only reason they picked the store was how it looked in the first place. The producers, after getting consent from the store, hired a crew to bring the store back to what it had looked like before. The finished product is what you see in the film. Which I think is hilarious. This actually goes back. This is uh, something similar to uh, the film that must not be named. No, no. I was going to say "Message in a Bottle," which is oh, that's right, the restaurant where where the house that they had to like fix up and then redo, put it back to what it looked like before. So they had to like make it look worse afterwards. Didn't didn't Eight Millimeter have something to do with the house and the graveyard? Who cares? Yeah, I, I don't They're want both bad movies. We're not going to talk yeah. about them anymore. Yeah. There's a grocery store in Calgary, or I should say former. I, I don't know what it is now. I think it's been uh, repurposed several times, but it's um, a few blocks up the street from locals would know a place called the camera store. Uh, but it's got the same look with the, the roof angling down on both sides, kind of meeting at the center and all that. Because yeah, as soon as they showed the story, I went, that looks like a place in Calgary. <laughs> uh, this was Melissa McCarthy's film debut. This is her first ah, film cool. she ever appeared in. She's so great. great. Yeah, she's great. Uh, and Christina Ricci was originally cast in the role of Rana, so the Sarah Pauly character, but had to drop out mm. due to scheduling conflicts, which I could see her. I could see her being in this movie for sure. But it'd be a different yeah. movie, too. Yeah, she's got a more... Well, yeah, it'd be interesting. I mean, different she, styles. Yeah, she's got a definitely a more ghoulish 
<laughs> look, but Sarah Pauli, uh, by the end, goes full heroin addict, uh, right. brutal by the end. It was, it was interesting. Well, you get hit by a car and see how great you look. Mm-hmm. Trying to think if I have been hit by a car. I have. I actually, in Seattle, went up onto the roof of a car. <laughs> and? Uh, and I no, walked that's away. It. That's, the, yeah. that's the end of the story? You're like a moose. Uh, I thought he saw me. He didn't see me. So he advanced to the intersection. And I went right up onto his hood. And then he was very apologetic. And I'm here to tell the tale. Thank you so much, Jen, for being here talking about Go. Uh, if people wanted to, is there a way that they can follow you online? Um, very simply, all of my uh, handles tend to be at Hull's Emporium. H-A-L-L-S-E-M-P-O-R-I-U-M. And let's find out, I guess, what we are seeing next week. All right. So let me rip this off. Oh, it is all about my mother. The, uh, the film from Spain, from Pedro Almodovar. I see this is shaking head from, from both people. No, is that no a recognition sitcom that was, uh, is that a sitcom that was very popular in the United States? Uh, oh, that's right. Fortunately for many years, I guess until that time, um, are you feeling fine? I, 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 have you like readjusted to real life yet, Dave? Well, it's interesting coming out of the matrix and being told I'm not allowed to leave my house. It's a fascinating, <laughs> it's a fascinating experience. Well, luckily enough, though, you can actually now get your grocery store to deliver red pills for you. 